Greetings, fellow wanderers in the fourth dimension. I am the fearsome Emma Foster, and joining me as always is the malevolent Mike Mould. And we are discussing (laughs) discussing the 50 scariest, or great scary moments in Doctor Who as Mm. compiled by Den of Geek. Uh, This list is, um, was originally published, yeah, it was originally published uh, (laughs) sort of around 50th anniversary times, where there might be a couple of scares on here that you think might warrant inclusion. We'll probably talk about that when we get to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And by no means is this list uh, intended to be definitive. It's uh, just a, a, a sort of interesting list of 50 scary bits of Doctor Who and uh, reading through it, it's in chronological order mm. so um, we'll do probably what we did with the uh, our last list show in that we'll alternate and we'll have a chat in, about them in between so okay. why don't you kick us off Mike number one okay number one the first TARDIS journey following an unsettling 25 minutes of investigation torture and kidnapped our favourite family show was born the Doctor decides school teachers Ian and Barbara have to come with them and Susan the first TARDIS journey takes them away from J- London the camera pounds up from the city, into space, into time. The vortex of the opening titles, which are also scary, and early tests featuring faces appearing in them look positively demonic, and finally the ship lands. Ian and Barbara, our way into the story, are unconscious. as before we even consider what might be outside. Yeah, when you think about the think about it that way, um, yeah, it's totally scary. Um, I think we've talked about um, how unsettling and weird it must have been watching this kind of completely cold. Mm. And with no context and never seeing anything like this before, I think, um, especially some of these early ones, we definitely take for granted um, it, how scary and unsettling it must have been. Mm. Yeah. I, to be honest, I'm, I'm not sure if this class, classifies to me as scary. It's foreboding, certainly. Because, yeah. I mean, you don't know what's going on. You've got this mysterious figure outside the ship. Um, but it's, it's like, I don't know, it's not like... The TARDIS is landing, and then it's like, "Boo!" There's something there. It's just, it's just. I think it's more sort of creepy, to be personal, in my mm. opinion. I think again, it's it's actually. I think it's it's kind of the British way of doing mm. horrible things. Actually, yeah. We we tend to in this country just sort of we tend to stick with the creeping dread. Mm. Sort of the famous Pink Floyd lyric, carrying on in quiet desperation, English the English way, <laughs> and um, that is that is our way of sci-fi, mm. and most of our sci-fi is bleak and depressing in that way. So yes. you know, enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So number two, Susan's journey across the wastelands. Scarrow was often filmed on location in a quarry, but for sheer oppressive atmosphere, you can't beat the original. A studio set of petrified trees and magnetic or metallic li- lizards, not many. <laughs> Susan has travelled through the foothills by the Dalek City, through the jungle, back to the TARDIS to get anti-radiation pills for her sick friends. She's not as alone as she thought she'd be, and now she has to go back. Mm. Um, yeah, she yeah. has to go back. <laughs> it's not good enough to make it. It's um, It kind of reminds me of, you know, when you're playing a video game mm-hmm. and you get to a part where there's no enemies and loads of supplies and you think, fuck. Yeah, there's a boss happen. fight. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, personally, I probably would have uh, switched that out for um, Barbara getting menaced by the Dalek at the end of yeah. episode one because I mean that's that's the iconic one, really, isn't it? Mm. And it's it's, not, it's, yeah, I mean, it's not so much the sink plunder; it's Jacqueline Hill's just blood curdling scream. Of what she's, she's seeing. So I love Jacqueline Hill mm. so much. Uh, she, I mean, she's. Um, I think the list brings it out later that she set the bar. She sets the bar so high for what mm. we expect as a companion. And yeah, what you know is basically a sink plunger being waved at her, <laughs> and she just ten thousand percent commits to it. Mm. 
So moving on to number three. Ah, centerite. <laughs> oh, Den of Geek, you, you complete dogs. <laughs> Once we know more about the centerites, their menace diminishes somewhat. In Strange of Space, our first glimpses, as it's become a, became a cliche, the monster reveal at the end of the episode. Having trapped the human crew of an opening ship using mind control, the centerite ships begin their approach. Which is why it's a bit of a shock when Ian sees one looking in through the window. Hmm... Problem is, when you look at the screenshot, and as well yeah. when you watch it, it's a, it's a touch cheesy. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, you probably want to imagine, oh, if you're watching it, again, completely cold. and mm-hmm. But um, it's a bit, you know, that, that episode um, of uh, The Outer Limits or Twim, um, mm. uh, Twilight Zone with Shatner goes, I've been on the wing, you know. I mean, again, at the time, it would have been terrifying, but yeah. now it's just it's like kind the, of comical. Yeah, well, the problem is, with it being a British show, it's more like, can I borrow some milk? It is. It does look like it. Excuse me. Can I just? Uh... Hello. <laughs> We're from the Liberal Democrats. <laughs> Take that political humour. Nah. Um, yeah. So it, oh, it might, uh, it's one of those things of yeah. I'm, I'm sure it would have been scary if I was five watching this, mm. but um, now it's mm, no. touch cheese. Yeah. Well, I mean, the sensorites is not one of the best. Oh, tedious. Yeah. It's boring. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, number four. <laughs> Death is very far away. Barbara Wright quietly went about setting the bar very high for future companions. Famous for being the first character in the series to see a Dalek, the cliffhanger to the third episodes of the Crusade is a different sort of scare. Kidnapped by LKA after publicly humiliating him, the scarred Saracen promises Barbara, Death is the only pleasure left for you and Death is very far away. It's the kind of line that would be on a t-shirt within minutes if it appeared in Game of Thrones. Yeah, true that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, truth. Um, so unbelievably metal. Also, mm. I really, I, I like it a lot. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's that kind of. It, it's a, obviously you know it's when when you watch the what's left of the crusade or you listen to the audio, mm-hmm. it, you know this isn't the guy who isn't fucking around. Mm. <laughs> and it it sounds like that Barbara is not for a good time, mm. and maybe not and not to enjoy her last time on Earth for all you know. So yeah, it's it's kind of the th- it's kind of a threat that you take seriously. Mm-hmm. 100%. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like uh, some of these the the cliffhangers where it's not so much boo, there's a monster, mm. but it's just like somebody saying a line. I mean, I think one of the um, ones from uh, I think it's Evil of the Daleks that's always got me is when it's revealed that the the experiment to change the Daleks to give them more like human thought patterns and that has worked because the doc says, you know, they're playing trains. It's more about mm. the sort of like, oh wow, rather than the, oh god. Yeah, it's it's hundred percent the implication rather than mm-hmm. the than the result. I mean as well, you've got the factor that this is on at tea time. Mm. So you can't go into a big laundry list of all the awful things that's gonna happen. <laughs> you have to just sort of leave it up to your imagination, which is always ten times worse. Mm. So moving on to number five, the Cybermen revealed. The first appearance of the Cybermen yields no clues to what they are, and thus it's really weird. Spaceships land, and the crew of the Antarctic base are busy investigating the TARDIS. They're not prepared for cloth-faced monsters with a punch like a sledgehammer, and as such, said monsters break their necks. The creepiest bit is when a Cyberman reaches down to one of the corpses with its human hand, and its face seems to register surprise, like it's remembered warm blood. Mmm... Again, it, it's it's one of those things of when you read into the scene, mm-hmm. you you get a lot of that out. But I mean, the original Cybermen are very weird. 
Yeah. And like really unsettlingly so. I mean, even without any prior knowledge of what exactly they are, which, you know, obviously a lot of the body horror mm-hmm. comes into it and a lot of that horror is, is sort of implied with everything you sort of know backstory. Yeah. But just the way they talk is so unsettling with the mouths that don't correspond to the words and... And yeah. there's three speech patterns. Yeah, exactly. It's very strange. And you've got that kind of weird... Because it's like the cloth faces as well. It's kind of pulled back... Mm over their features but not enough so you don't it's sort of like a kind of half finished doll face it's very strange and you kind yeah. of get to that you go into those uncanny valley type things of it's it's human but not human enough so your mm. brain just sort of starts to go no 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 i don't like it yeah and it kind of makes me wonder why they haven't gone back to something kind of like that within mm. the new series i mean okay when you look at the the 10th planet Cybermen, they are a little bit dorky looking but at the same time it's because they're such a like strange mishmash you know, like they've cobbled themselves together or something. It's, it's, I kind of wish they'd sort of maybe go back to that a little bit with the Cybermen. Mm. I mean, uh, something that I've said before is that I really liked that um, when you look at things like Earthshock, mm-hmm. if you look at their helmets, they've got the clear chin plate yeah. and you can see their chins moving inside it. Mm-hmm. And I quite like that because they're kind of bodged together. Yeah, and then sometimes you see the battery pack for the microphone slipping. Oh, no, wait. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Bo. Okay, number six. Lesterson precedes Davros. In The Power of the Daleks, Economy's chief scientist Lesterson provides, uh, powers up some dormant Daleks and defends them against the Doctor's accusations. When they eventually reveal their true nature, Lesterson attempts to buy the Doctor more time by reasoning with them, saying, You wouldn't kill me, I gave you life. Yes, Adali replies, You gave us life. They kill him. And so it ever was with the Daleks. <laughs> oh, there's your problem. Yep. <laughs> You trusted some Daleks. Um, yeah, uh, it's one of those things of um, the Daleks use, use of human um, mm. s- sort of uh, advocates, if you will. Stooges, you, you, really. Stooges, yeah, stoo- stool pigeons. Um, it, it, 100% you know as an audience, mm. this guy's not long for this world. But it's always the sense of betrayal that that comes with it is always kind of scary. And and mm. as well, because we're the, we're the audience have knowledge that the protagonist doesn't have. Yeah. So we're always waiting for them to get shot. Mm-hmm. So we put a lot of that that tension into the scene by going, oh, when's he going to die? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so number seven, the Cyberman appears instead of Packer. This is a pretty simple one. Packer, Tobias Vaughn's Uber engine extraordinaire, communicates with his boss by video screen throughout the invasion. Near the end, when the Cybermen crush the unexpected human resistance, Tobias Vaughn's factory is being overrun. He calls for his trusted psychic, but there is no one on screen. Then a Cyberman's face suddenly looms large in the scanner. In the great DVD commentary in the sky, Doug Camfield chuckles to himself. <laughs> Too right he does. <laughs> um, the Invasion is a great story. Hmm. I mean, considering that it's long as well, it doesn't drag like a lot of the, the longer ones kind of do yeah, when you watch a, a big chunk. Yeah. It, it, it cracks along and it doesn't repeat itself too much. Like when you watch the War Games, mm-hmm. you know, you are watching the same episode three times, yeah. essentially, in a lot of it. Um, but, yeah, and it's one of those classic kind of, where's the, you know, where's the henchman and the guy... Your enemy appears in the screen instead of the person you were expecting. Mm. Again, we as the audience know that you know this sort of cosy arrangement that Vaughn's got isn't gonna last. Yeah, and so you're just waiting for that gotcha moment, and that's it. Perfectly. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> okay, number eight, total destruct. 
The Autons are creepy enough as it is with their blank face, when's it going to move, big explodey gun with the frog screaming in the wind tunnel sound effect. It's all bad. So when one slices into a tent with its fingertips and shoots someone off a table, it's somewhat traumatising. But then, oh then, it gets worse. It fires again and poor Ransom's body completely disappears. When I first saw this, my granddad gave me some raisins to make me calm down. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet granddad strats. Um, yeah, the Autons are really weird. Mm. And um, in their first appearance, even more so. So um, it's that the idea that we lord Sue Moffat so much for now in mm. that the ordinary made terrifying because any plastic thing, mm-hmm. which in the 70s was quite a lot of your household decor, oh, yeah. um, uh, could just wrap itself around your neck and kill you. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, I don't know necessarily about the total destruction sequence because, again, it's a mm. little bit cheesy. But, I mean, mm. the fact that the old ones have the power to do that... Mm is unsettling but um anyway moving on to number nine the many deaths of jeffrey palmer if you see jeffrey palmer in doctor who don't get attached his character is, di- is going to die promptly his first and most memorable death is in the silurians when masters cast the silurian prey to, from derbyshire into london and gradually succumbs to it as the infection sweeps through the city palmer his face dotted with scabs flops forward onto some railings and then slithers down them it's like his spine's melting can I just say this is a particularly horrible death as mm. well for him? Um, this this scene actually, when you watch it, um, mm. it's straight out of again sort of the great traditional kind of quite a mass, yeah. uh, the later kind of miserable, <laughs> miserable five minutes into the future kind of stuff like threads uh-huh. and stuff like that, just people dying in the streets and. Mm police firing into rioting crowds and things like that um it's properly traumatizing and but it's again it's 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 scary enough for kids but when you watch it again as an adult you think oh that's fucking horrible mm-hmm. <laughs> um and as well it's kind of because he's walking through london yeah this being london obviously um people just kind of walking out of his way and not mm-hmm. helping him and stuff because he's desperately trying to get help and yeah people just waiting for him to just keel over essentially <laughs> yeah I mean, kind of no hope for you <laughs> yeah it's um yeah that is like genuinely like a genuinely sort of creepy bit from like this show that's often like touted as a family show it's just mm. when when he just like succumbs like like it says in the description for it he just sort of like flops out. yeah yeah really nasty I mean, so there's the glassy look in his eyes Ugh. yeah he dies very well mm. um but then you get to calm yourself down by watching two minutes of um people looking at slides <laughs> uh in, a, in an attempt yeah. to pad out the running time of that show <laughs> Seven episodes. <laughs> Ooh, seven episodes. Yikes. <laughs> Number 10, outstretched arms. Many Doctor Who monsters operate on the good old alarm system of don't let it touch you or lest you be killed or transformed. The Ambassadors of Death is an ex- excellent example. Combined with the unsettling astral image and the violence of some of the deaths we've seen already, the excitement of waiting till next week must have been unbearable when the Doctor crouched down to examine a corpse, only for the astronaut's outstretched arm to reach slowly toward our hero. Cue credits. Perhaps this is why so many of us fans fear human contact. Mm. Uh, <laughs> um, and I've, I've kind of slammed ambassadors on the show before mm-hmm. because I think the last time I tried to watch it, I was bored shitless. <laughs> um, again, but it's that kind of thing of you're not meant to watch it in a big chunk like that. Mm. And I think I forget the scary bits of ambassadors. Yeah. You know, because you, you kind of get bored into a coma by watching, you know, people run away from security services over dams for a while and... <laughs> You know, nothing kind of happens for the first two episodes and that sort of stuff. So, but yeah, um, blank faced astronauts, mm. so good they did it twice. Yep. 
Yeah. Maybe the Vashon Arada. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got uh, Ambassadors of Death for Christmas. I still haven't got around to that just yet. Yeah, space it out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, number 11, Suffocation by Death Gold. Bloody Autons again. Mm. <laughs> Understand. <He's> traumatised. <laughs> <laughs> Understandably, the production team got into quite a bit of trouble for Terror of the Autons with its killer dolls, seats and policemen. Most unnerving the lot of them, for me at any rate, were the plastic daffodils handed out by Autons and grotesquely friendly masks. These sprayed a plastic film over the nose and mouth, suffocating the victims and their melting away. Widespread asphyxiation and heart failures are soon reported across the country. As the matter says, death is always more frightening when it strikes invisibly. Isn't it just? Mm. Um, yeah, but the thing always gets me about it, when it's obviously the actors selling it by sort of clawing at their mm. faces to try and get the, the, the goo off, which yeah. I never really liked, because obviously they're, they're sort of going all out you know portraying this so mm-hmm. yeah i never really liked that and i remember wasn't there a there was a big fuss about be with the policemen because they were like children are going to be scared of talking to policemen now yeah oh yeah that was that was i think that was the big thing i mean the yeah the doll was the other one because that doll is horrifying by the way anyone oh, yeah. ever gave me one of those i'll punch him in the face i'm like why do you hate me so much <laughs> i mean who the fuck would pick that up and think oh yeah i like that i'll take that home jesus oh, christ a, a maniac <laughs> Number 12, Statue <laughs> or Stalker. Death of the Daleks Part 1 is mainly set in the dark. It's unsettling enough that the TARDIS is seemingly dead, but to find the cause, the Doctor and Sarah will have to head out to onto a mist-wreathed planet full of strange rock formations. It seems dead, all is dust, and oh my god, one of them moved! Weeping <coughs> angels, sorry. Yeah, just a touch. <laughs> but um, fog always kind of freaks me out as a, as a child of Silent Hill. Mm. Um I never trust it. I always expect Pyramid Head to come staggering out towards me. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I never really like fog-wreathed things. Mm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of that. Well, don't, don't ever go to San Francisco. We'll chase you down the street. <laughs> I remember the first time I went to San Francisco it was August. I mean, just mm. come from Las Vegas, where it was like 100 degrees Fahrenheit on a night, to San Francisco where it's f- freezing. Mm. <laughs> and, and on the night time when the fog rolls in, you just see it barreling down the street towards you it's yeah, like oh um, Jesus Christ <laughs> I mean the thing I always think of is pea supers obviously mm. being from London and stuff and my nan used to tell me stories about you would go out and you could literally not see your hand in front of your face mm. um, and it was sort of hanging columns yeah in places um, and I was listening to No Such Thing as a Fish, the QI podcast. They said mm. it got so bad at one point, they would they had people who were blind waiting at train stations to lead sighted people home because <laughs> they had no way to navigate in this world where you couldn't see your feet when you were standing up. Wow. I, I can't believe they haven't done a pea super story yet because that I mean all these things of you know you've probably people have probably seen these pictures of mm. buses crawling down the street with a policeman with literally a flaming torch mm. walking in front of it to clear the way mm. you know I can't believe they haven't done that yet and that to me is properly scary yeah but uh, Death of the Dogs part one um, <laughs> yeah anyway <laughs> yeah um, I mean it's not one of my favourite uh, No, stories. it's one of those ones people skip over a lot. Mm. I, I, I don't think I've ever met someone who's gone, oh, Death of the Daleks, now there's a Stone Cold classic. Mm. But I do like the fact that, you know, even the TARDIS, you know, one of the greatest icons of science fiction, can get knackered by the planet Exelon. That, that's, <laughs> that's unnerving. Yeah, but, I mean, because you're so reliant on this thing, it's mm. just like if this doesn't work, we're truly buggered. Mm-hmm. You know, and to get somewhere stranded, like some stranded somewhere like Exelon, I mean, that is a rough deal. Mm. 
I mean, and also I have to sort of like a lot of people shout out for giving the dogs like machine guns, but at the same time, mm. that's it's kind of sort of it's it's a bit like unnerving to think of like dogs having like projectile weapons rather than the energy based ones they always have. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's it's, it's you know those... what project projectile weapons work really well. Mm. That's why we really haven't moved on from them in the last couple of hundred years. Yeah. Um. So. I think it obviously it's not spacey enough to have a projectile weapon, mm-hmm. but um, it's something when I play video games and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, because I play things like uh, if you look at Wolfenstein, uh, the new order, mm-hmm. there were things like you had machine guns, AKs, assault yeah. rifles, and you've got things like the laser craft work, which is a <laughs> which is a basically a pew pew energy gun, and that just feels like just hitting a button, whereas mm-hmm. the other gun they're visceral when you get that, yeah. and they obviously you want that on the screen. Mm. Anyway, moving on. Uh, number 13. Invisible spiders on your back. The arachnids in the planet of the spiders are not your own assuming flying, just quietly trying to get on with the lives of spiders of your dwelling place. Instead, the big, power-hungry, invisible can control your mind, and they're possibly on your back just out of sight. Yeah, that's probably just an itch. Yeah, my neck niches now. Fuck this. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, we talked. Uh, I mentioned on our last show that um, this episode gave my husband his a lifelong arachnophobia. Mm. Um, he directly blames it for that. And yeah, I, I don't like spiders at the best of times either. Mm. Yeah, and the thought of one just kind of sitting on your back like that is horrible. I mean, it's yeah. bad enough that it, it, like in my old house, they would do that thing of they drop in front of your face. Yeah. <laughs> it would be sit on the ceiling and just go like that. You're trying to watch TV. Like, hello. I mean, as well, I think um, when you look at the spiders in this, it, they look a bit, well, they look unreal because mm. they had a thing at the BBC of not making them too realistic yeah. because of people who are arachnophobes. It mm. affects people so badly that they have to make them kind of look shitty. Mm-hmm. Because to to kind of assuage fears and stuff, um, yeah. I think it's it's kind of mitigated for me, and they don't move too much. No. One of the things I hate about spiders is the jerky moving. Thing. Yeah, essentially just like a bloody nervous system, isn't they? So they just <laughs> yeah. like that. So um, yeah, it's not too bad for me, but yeah, that's um, that thing of not looking over your shoulder, and not being able to see it. Mm. That's horrible. Ugh. And again, an idea so good, they brought it back. <laughs> <laughs> Well, when you've got a good idea, why waste it? Oh, definitely not. Speaking of good ideas, number 14, the Wirin. <coughs> the Ark in Space is more famous for its use of bubble wrap, even though it works quite well, than the underlying horror of its monsters. Consider the Wirin's wasp-like modus operandi. The queen lays her eggs in a host body. The larvae consume the body and mind, absorbing knowledge as they eat. We never get to see what happens to the bodies of the people they attack, but they're completely gone by the time we return. They're literally going to eat us alive. Mm. Yeah, um, again, up there with my most hated things on planet Earth, wasps. Fuck wasps, fuck everything about wasps. They, they're awful. Yeah. Um, and there are wasps in nature that do this sort of thing, obviously mm-hmm. not with the knowledge, but things which will lay eggs in other in bodies and then they eat it from the inside out and things yeah. like that. Uh, fuck everything about that, frankly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fuck wasps. Yeah, they're awful. Um, yeah, again, like the like the article says, the whole hand wrapped in green bubble wrap mm-hmm. is kind of the famous the famous thing, and the guy turning half into a wearing and kind of acting his little socks off yeah. through it. Um, and also, I think it's infamous for the wearing falling out of the cupboard. Mm. It just sort of because obviously it's just an empty plop, and it just goes. Yeah, it, it looks like it's made of paper mache because it is. Yes. Um, but it say it's one of those things of when you think about it, it's far worse than the execution than you see on the TV. Hmm. So it's still pretty. Yeah, uh, not not bad though. I think the word gets a lot of shit though. 
Oh, they do get a lot of grief. Um, yeah. But, it, but I think as well, it's it's part of the fact that they're on this bright white space station. Yeah. There's nothing to hide them. If they were somewhere dark, they'd mm-hmm. probably get away with it. Yeah. If I think if like space station Nerve had been like on standby mode, so like the the lighting was down, it was just like 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 covered like in a few like coloured gels, like red or something, just like mm-hmm. say the station was on standby while you know the humans like hibernated, then that probably would have worked a lot better. I think, but. Mm. There you go. Moving on, number 15, Davros in general. Davros is obviously Hitler. The Nazi parallels of the Daleks have been long established, and here we have the creator, a ranting, persuasive, driven megalomaniac with messianic aspirations. Davros's responses to everything are so detached and analytical that he responds to hypothetical questions about mass genocide like a man who's just heard an amusing witticism. By this stage, admittedly, he's just wiped out most life on Scar to safeguard his creation. If it was played by Michael Wisher as a humanoid scientist, Davros would still be terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, mm. Davros is awful. I would say if you're if you want to know more about Davros, I highly recommend the Big Finish series. I Davros, mm. which sort of goes into kind of pre his pre life before he ended up like he is in the chair, mm-hmm. um, which is quite interesting. You get the start of his ideas and all this sort of stuff. I think the scary thing about Davros is when the Doctor directly confronts him, mm-hmm. especially in Genesis, and he's sort of saying, look, literally if you do this now, this is what's going to happen. And Davros just takes that idea and goes, great. Cool. Cool. Let me press the button now. You know, and it's like the Doctor's, you think that the logic of someone saying, look, this is literally, this awful stuff is going to happen mm-hmm. because of you. And the guy not going, oh my God, but either going groovy and pressing the button. I mean, that's awful. Yeah. Two thumbs up. Oh no, wait. Mm. Um, but 10 um, out of 10 would genocide again. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I just like throw out a slightly possibly uh, dangerous opinion right about now? Do it. I, I really like Terry Malloy as Davros best. Yeah, I do. But to me, he's he is the iconic performance for me. Mm. But I think it's 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 more sort of like you know Michael Wisher was very sort of like cold and analytical. Mm. Terry Malloy did the same thing, but it, when he would whisper, but then he would just have this moments where he would just go mental. You know, it's <laughs> well again. It's the, where obviously you get the obvious Hitler comparison. Mm. Like if you watch any of Hitler's speeches, like mm-hmm. if you ever watch any like the Nuremberg stuff, and he, he looks like properly unhinged. It's terrifying, mm. and sort of Terry Malloy sort of did that. Sort of went full force with that. Mm. But I mean, um, I think the only sort of like Davros that didn't really work for me was David Goodison in Destiny. Mm-hmm. Because it's just, yeah. it just, it's just a touch milk toast, wasn't it? Yeah, um, but um, I do like I do like Julian Bleach's Davros as well because he does tend it gets a few, like few good like one liners as well. Mm. You know, like when um, Martha's like pages him from the Osterhagen station, and he just says, uh, "Oh, you know, I've got the doctor; he's my prisoner. So, uh, what do you want?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I did like Julian Bleach's performance as well. I mean, because he, pro- I mean. Again, I think it was the full Hitler, Hitler in full flow kind mm. of insanity, unhingedness he brought mm. to it as well. But I think a lot of Julian Bleach's one down to the sort of the advances in portraying him physically. Mm. So you've got all the black teeth and the metal hand, and you know when he opens his jacket and you've got kind of the rib cage and all pulsing stuff inside it. I mean, that's pretty. Mm. That's pretty strong stuff. Yeah. 
Hey, number 16, just entitled Aptly Named. Terror of the Zygons has some brilliantly monstrous images, thanks to some wonderful still and sinister performances by the guest cast. The face of the titular monster's out of focus in the background has a cruel and demonic sneer to it. We see close-ups of eyes, a hand, an arm, and then from nowhere the full reveal. Even when you know it's coming, the cliffhanger of part one still delivers. It's a combination of editing the camera zoom, the sheer unexpectedness of it, and Liz Slayland's immaculately timed yelp. And it all happens so fast, you don't fully have time to process it. Mm. Yeah, the Zygons are great. Um, they've always been kind of one of the, the best kind of second rank monsters mm -hmm. below sort of Sidemen and the Daleks. Yeah. Um, I was ecstatic when they brought them back. And I think even in the early portrayals, obviously where you're you're looking at sort of less advanced um, makeup techniques and stuff, mm -hmm. they look so weird. And yeah. they've been, they, but they've been thought out so well. They're all sort of weird and fleshy but then there's ships like that as well and you've got the yeah. suckers and the poison stick and then the faces are so so strange they're kind of human but animalistic as well yeah they're kind of gaunt as well even mm. though it's like they're, they're surrounded by this like fleshy mass that is the head the faces are actually rather gaunt when you like look at the picture they've got on den of geek mm. like the close-up of the zygon um, and they're all veiny as well. And yeah. yeah, I mean, because they're kind of gross in that way. The octopuses are gross, you know, mm. that kind of boneless yeah. flappiness. Yeah. Um, again, it's, I think it's sort of the level of imagination and work mm. that's gone into them. I mean, it makes them a cut above, you know, your ordinary kind of tin four monsters that you kind of get later on. Yeah. Um, they're, they're truly one of the more iconic monsters and the mm. fact that they've made a return yeah. um, sort of speaks to that. Yeah, I mean, it still surprises me to this day like how long it actually took for them to like go, right, we're bringing back the Zygons. You know, oh, I yeah, I mean, the fact that you get, you get the all-time, what you've had back since, mm -hmm. before they brought back Zygons, I don't know if it's just because of the commitment to the makeup even. Mm. I mean, that you've got to put an actor through that essentially um to portray them and in multiples of them as well mm. um yeah i mean the fact that they've hesitated to do that for so long i think speaks to sort of the level of commitment it took mm. so number 17 namin is killed by the servant of sutek Yay. The mean seems a very humorless man. He spends much of his screen time in pyramids of Mars looking angry at Englishmen and stirring himself into a nine religious fervour. He's already shot and wounded Dr. Warlock, and now he looks like he's going to summon Sutek the Destroyer. All in all, it's been a good episode's work for the henchmen. It's therefore quite a nasty surprise when the figure in black that greets him is not Sutek, but merely the henchman one level up from Namin. He communicates this by slowly roasting Namin alive with his hands, impassionally intoning, altogether now, <laughs> Die. Die. I, I bring, bring Sutek's gift of death, death to all, all humanity. Um, yeah. One of the best cliffhangers ever, do you think? It's got to be up there, it's isn't up it? It's up there. It's up there. And again, but it's one of those things of, I'm sure that that gag of the smoking shoulders and mm. all that, I'm sure that's as simple as to do, mm. but it's so effective. Mm. And again, but, and it's it's a classic kind of henchman is killed by the next level up henchman. I mean, how many times have we seen that? <laughs> but it's it's so effective. And mm. he's, it, again, it's, it's all the soundtrack is welling up and all the fervors going with it. And you've got kind of this weird thing appears and you think, oh, this must be the guy. And it's like, nope. nope. So he's worse than me is coming. In the meantime, That. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think also what sells is, is that the, the actor who plays Namine throughout that whole bit, he's absolutely bricking himself. Oh yeah, he's shitting it all the way through yeah. uh, because he knows what he's he knows what's coming. Mm. Um, it's it's kind of it's quite Lovecrafty in that you know 
everyone in Lovecraft, if they're summoning someone, they seem to know it's a tremendously bad idea, but are doing it anyway. Yeah. And that's kind of it. <laughs> Which makes you wonder, why the fuck are you doing it in the first place then, you silly tit? <laughs> just, just quit that. <laughs> but it, that, it's that whole kind of Faustian thing of, I want knowledge, he has knowledge, therefore mm. he's got to come and he's got to come and see me essentially mm. so even though everyone is reading is like you dumb shit you're gonna be dead yeah you're dead <laughs> <laughs> speaking of which number 18 neil the might of sutek not content with killing his allies in a fit of demarcation sutek is also capable of torturing the doctor with his mind chuckling at his effortless superiority it's rare that you'll see the doctor so helpless and tom baker and gabriel will sell the scene completely the point where you realise how helpless the Doctor is comes when he is instructed to kneel and resists, only to meet with laughter and a stronger will than his. The Doctor kneels. At this point, it's impossible to see how he can win. Yeah, I mean, this is scary yeah. because our, our our hero is being effortlessly kind of manipulated by our baddie. Mm. And Sutek is kind of, again, sort of talking Lovecraft, he's kind of eldritch baddie. Mm-hmm. Of you, you can't even comprehend how powerful he is compared to you. Yeah. I mean, again, it's like us versus an insect. And mm-hmm. he, he, he says that several times in his dialogue. Yeah. That, you know, he, he could just literally crush you without a second thought and move on. Mm. Um, yeah. What, yeah. What, what really does it for me is, like, as it says in there, like when Gabriel Wolf chuckles when he orders the Doctor to kneel, it's mm. just like, oh, come on, mate. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> come mean, on, you, can't, you yeah. can't stand up against me. I mean, God bless you for trying, but, you know, it's, yeah. it's not happening, mate. Yeah, it's just it's down. Yeah, he just bounces off him, essentially, like nothing. He's just coming at him with his, his full his full force, <clears throat> and it does nothing to, to stop him. Um, mm. it, it, up to this point as well, we haven't really encountered many things that are kind of big like that in Doctor Who as mm. baddies. I mean, they're aliens or things like that but they are mortal essentially mm-hmm. or they have a simple motivation you haven't kind of met things which are kind of essentially god tier mm. which is what Sutek is so it's kind of a whole new flavour of baddie mm. so moving on to number 19 the master is having a bit of a shocker various explanations have been offered for the master's skeletal death-like experience in the deadly assassin but let's just accept the obvious one robert holmes wanted to scare us do you know what the green reaper lacks that sense that all the flesh has been burnt off him, being entirely motivated by hate, a giant positronic brain, and he accessed huge train sets. Yeah, I mean, um, we talked about this in the Master Show. Mm. Um, the yeah, the the deadly assassin Master is properly grim to look mm. at. In that it's not, it, it's basically a skeleton being hung together with like connective tissue, mm. and you get a right good look at it. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's it's properly nasty, and you get the feeling that that rope's kind of sticking to him and all that sort of thing. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it peels it off. And it's like, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that kind of icky horror as mm. opposed to thinky horror, which is what <laughs> Doctor Who kind of more was more selling itself on at yeah. this point. <laughs> which leads into 2020, Choo Choo, the Deadly Assassin. <laughs> so far, the Doctor's trip to the virtual reality Matrix has been a total hassle. It's a place of lots of, and suddenly, there are all these clowns and snakes and samurai and being generally unexpected and freaky. So it's quite generally been quite unsettling. And suddenly, there's a train track, and the points have been changed by a masked man trapping the doctor's ankle. This is painful enough, but relatively speaking, it's going to be a walk in the park compared with what happens when the train reaches him. <laughs> um, 
classic cliffhanger, isn't it? Mm. Of girl tied tied to the train tracks. So in this case, it's the doctor. Mm. I think what sells it as well is Tom. How Tom Baker sort of sells the pain of being his ankle being trapped in the when the points change. Yeah. Oh yeah. Because he probably goes ah, ah doesn't he with his yeah, leg? Proper yelp. Mm. Yeah. I suppose it was a bit methany. Did that for real? <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, the 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 matrix they have with the time loss is. Pretty weird, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's it's essentially well the the Keanu Reeves Matrix, isn't it? I don't know. The the Keanu Reeves Matrix makes a lot more sense than the. Than well, the only Reeves. the first one. Don't yeah. watch the other two. <laughs> <laughs> Number twenty one. The door is not a barrier. The robots of death is perhaps a bit of a giveaway as titles go, but feet aside, these creepy mechanical men have never been matched. It helps that some of them have subtle personalities, despite the neutral inflections of their voices. This tone makes their death threats all the more disturbing. As one tries to break in to murder a crew member, it says simply, the door is not a barrier. Doors traditionally are barriers. The only thing worse than having someone break into your house and murdering you is for it to coldly tell you how little protection you have first. Yeah, it's one of those things that I love Robots of Death. I've mm. seen it several times, and I don't know if I've ever thought about that line as being creepy, but then when you think about it, it really is. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just waiting for a point in my life where I could get to say, please do not throw hands at me. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's one of those ones that Rebels of Death is, is a really great episode, like rewatchability wise, because there's mm. lots of things you can pick out from it as you watch it again. Mm. And things like that. I mean, again, it, it kind of nails it on with the title, and the villain is super obvious. Um, but it, it's one of those ones, it's kind of a gift that keeps on giving. And I think mm. the next time I watch it, I'll, I'll be hanging on for, those, for that line and kind of seeing how it, how it blends in. Mm. Number 22 The Doctor gives Stale the gun. The Doctor is never cruel or cowardly, as Terence Dix famously said. This is kind of boring, though, and patently untrue. You might want to dispute both, but where there's shades of grey, you get a more interesting character. For, in for example, in the image of the Fendal, you could argue that the Doctor is giving the Doomsday a gun so he can kill himself is being cruel to be kind. You could argue that it's a cowardly act. You could argue that where there's life, there's hope. It's conjecture, really, but it's hard to square those two statements. The, cruel the Doctor is never cruel or cowardly. The Doctor gives Stow the gun. Hmm. Um, yeah, doesn't he just? Yeah. <laughs> um, the image of the Fendal, again, is one of those episodes that it's great, but a lot hmm. of people kind of skip over it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the sort of the, the secret origins of man sort of ones, which I'm, maybe is why that gets a bit of a, a, a skip over, because, you know, that, that gets done quite a few times. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, it does. It does get sort of it, go, it does get mishmashed in there, and I think I like it because I really like that mm. trope. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the whole thing of him not being cowardly or cruel. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's. I mean, yeah. we. They. It's been so deconstructed in the last few years. But yeah. yeah, I mean, it's one of those things of when you go back and watch it, you think, oh shit, he actually did do that. Mm -hmm. Where when you're when you're sort of in the flow of the story, you just sort you kind of just take it as red almost mm -hmm. but it's one of those things that kind of gets horrific when you think about it yeah it's it it kind of like sort of retroactively reminiscent of um uh uh flesh and stone where the the leader of the church task force gets like captured by a, a weeping angel and it's, it's got its net its arm around his neck and it's going to kill mm -hmm. him if the doctor doesn't because uh, the doctor cannot free him and you know and he's just the doctor just goes right you ready and the the um the coachman goes yeah and he just closes his eyes and then he just mm. <laughs> 
it's just awful really but mm. um i'm reminded of the the captain picard quote of it's possible to do everything right and not win mm-hmm. and it's kind of one of those situations i feel yeah number 23 the doctor's power trip part one the invasion of time is often remembered for its production flaws tinfoil aliens red brick tardis interiors copying some tyrants rather than its inspired opening gambit has the doctor gone bad Returning to Gallifrey to claim the presidency, the Doctor dismisses Leela and appears to be in league with the invading Vardens. Obviously, he really can't be. Obviously. Then again. Yeah, Invasion of Time, like, like the writer called Cry rightly says, it is one that kind of is repeatedly slammed for being pretty shonky. Mm-hmm. But it keeps the conceit going of the Doctor being a baddie. Spoiler alert, he mm-hmm. isn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it keeps that conceit going for really much longer than you think it would have done. Mm. Or you're all wait, you're sort of almost waiting for him to wink to the audience and say, "Oh yeah, I'm going to do this thing," but not really. Yeah. Um, but it really it doesn't give you that out for a long time. Mm. I, th- I mean, to be honest, I've I haven't seen Invasion of Time. I don't own it on DVD, and I think that's kind of one of the reasons why I haven't gotten around to getting it. Is because although obviously we know the Doctor has not gone bad, but just to mm. see him behave in such a manner you know yeah. he gets canine to shoot out the transduction barriers and all that all the stuff that would if it think, was if it was legit yeah. would seriously fuck up gallifrey you know his home planet mm. and it's just sort of like oh that's uh ooh. yeah and, and, and again i think with, with tom baker he's kind of got that cold side to him as well mm. when he, he when he turns that cold side on for the for the acting yeah it really, he really sort of buy it. You really buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I sort of try and put myself in the position of being like an eight-year-old kid, and the Doctor is my idol, and then watching that and being like destroyed by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's. <laughs> I mean, even though I'm thirty-one, I mm. still get that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, was that when, uh, sort of a more recent example? Obviously, on the waters of Mars. Mm. Oh yeah, God. when when the Doctor goes completely nutty, buddy. Just um, like fuck this, I'm in charge. Yeah, and you're just going, okay. oh, God. <laughs> no, don't stop it. Stop no. it. I don't like it. Um, again, Ooh. even as a grown-up, that still makes you feel icky. Mm. Okay, <clears throat> sorry about this. Number 24, oh, gruddy, oh, gruddy, life goes on. <laughs> it really shouldn't work. If you read or heard the writer going on about what about standing stones that move around and drain their victim's blood, you probably not... You'd probably not see that concept working on screen. Still, they can't help but look imposing from the point of view of two campers who wait to find their two pillars of stone outside their tent. You can't really blame them for assuming these objects wouldn't divest them of all their flesh, but them's the breaks. I fucking love the stones of blood, by the way. <laughs> I love it. And um, the Ogri are tremendous. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a great serial as well, right up until they sort of go to the spaceship. Yeah, that's that's where the stones of blood falls apart for me when it go when mm. it gets to the, the trial bit. And it's just sort of like you really just had to try and fill this out to six episodes, didn't you? He really did. But I mean, all the stuff that's not that, mm-hmm. like uh, all the stuff with the old paintings and yeah. all the like the little village satanic vicar blood sacrifice kind <laughs> of horror hammer horror shit. I love it. <laughs> um, so I I I, uh, I think there's such a again it's that weird there's such a weird idea for a baddie. Mm-hmm. And I think as well, when it was made, you had all things like Children of the Stones as well, this kind of yeah. that old English kind of wicker man, mm-hmm. kind of old world sort of 
magic-y kind of stuff going on, like the old rituals and stuff. Yeah. And if you've ever been to any of those standing stone circles, like I've been to Stonehenge, but like and some of the smaller ones, um, like and they they have got a weird atmosphere to mm. them. I don't know if that's just because where you're standing around with other people, you're like waiting for something weird to happen, or you know, <laughs> someone to spontaneously become pregnant or something like, or you know, get cured of their disease. All these weird things these mm. stones are supposed to be able to do. Um, like even with Stonehenge, I mean, I went before they changed it, even with a motorway motorway roaring past you, mm. like it used to be. Um, it has quite a sort of a, a strange sense to it around mm. there, so you can see why they got so, kind of so fixated upon when all these kind of little village kind of creepy witch type hammer horror stories mm. were getting popular in the 70s mm. here's a question for you who wins no fight the old crew or the weeping angels it's the old <laughs> unmovable force versus an unstoppable object isn't it really yeah. um i think we'd have to call that a no, no score draw i think would we <laughs> just still they just stand each other's uh <laughs> Uh, okay. yeah. <laughs> but I do like um, I like the Elkery maybe I mean even though they've only been in it once mm. the fact that there's nothing recognisable about. I mean the Weeping Angels obviously they're statues and like you, you saw like there's a recognisable quality to statues the Elkery are just rocks mm. you know so I think it's even more unsettling than the Angels do you know what I mean well the thing is like you can't reason with them you're just literally talking to a brick wall <laughs> You know, what can you do about it? <laughs> mm. Number 25. I love this one. The Doctor's Power Trip Part 2, The Armageddon Factor. The good thing about the fourth Doctor is that due to his general behaviour being outlandish, when he goes mad it's somewhat extreme. Having a seven-minute nebulous artefact called the Key to Time, the Doctor decides that it's too dangerous an object to possess. He illustrates this point by rolling his eyes back inside his skull and ranting about his will being the most important thing in the universe. And just for a second, it looks like he means it. Mm. Shout out to the screenshot they've used for this uh, to illustrate this one. It's <laughs> tremendous. I mean, that's full on Tom Baker going fucking. It nuts. is. It's full. It's full ham and cheese baguette in it. That one. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 maybe slightly less believable to me than Invasion of Time because you sort of like you know he put he's putting on, but he sells it so well, and the fact that Romana smacks him upside the head afterwards when he sort of like goes, no, of course not all right. <laughs> You stupid ass, stop doing that. I mean, it's, it's, it's good because, I mean, it sort of gives you a safety net as the audience that she brings him down a peg. Mm -hmm. But it's one of those things, if you're watching someone who, if he willed it, mm -hmm. could do something awful like that. Mm. It's literally his kind of, the say, it's either him or his companions or a combination of both or guilt or determination or his, anything, any of these factors that stop sort of puts him in a in a moral box and says mm. I won't do that but yeah. there's always again when we were talking about Waters of Mars there's the idea that he could easily yeah. just go yeah. full mental and just conquer a huge swathe of the universe mm -hmm. he needs someone to disarm him mm, absolutely number 26 the master's calling card mm. The master, is the, the master is the most sporting villain in creation, a strong believer in that forewarned is forearmed. Thus, he, when he knows the Doctor's mind in advance, a very useful tactic that is never mentioned again, he decides to leave him a few clues in the form of a shrunken action grip corpses of Artie Vanessa and a policeman in the former's car. What's upsetting about this, among many things, is that we see them desperately struggle against the force of the master's tissue compression eliminator as he merrily chuckles their forlorn attempts to survive. 
Yeah, we 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 at least discussed the weirdness of the tissue compression eliminator <laughs> in the master episode with three settings. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, this is not scary. No, no, it's. I mean, it's it's slightly disturbing what it does to people, mm. but con- considering that, yeah, they end up looking like dolls, and the design of the tissue compression eliminator. It's just a bit comical, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it would it would probably be a, maybe a bit better if they looked if they was like regular size, but like desiccated or something. That mm. would be more disturbing, you know. But eh, no, no. And no. I mean, as well, it doesn't help that the episode is as a whole is a bit of a mess, and it really you know. Oh, it, Logopolis. Just, it gets it. I mean, I've I've been out in my criticism of Logopolis before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it feels like a funeral. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, we're gonna guff with the watcher. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna drive the master out of our tatters by flooding it. <laughs> yeah, it just. I, mean, I think it, that 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 whole scene it just it gets lost in the rigmarole of the of the episode for me. Yeah, it's it's one of those ones where there was probably a good idea somewhere, but then it got completely lost. Mm-hmm. But um, never mind. Number twenty-seven inside Tegan's mind. The segments of Kinder set in Tegan's head are probably the most incisive characterization of the companion during the eighties. A mocking blonde man talking in riddles confuses the hell out of her, while two fusty alien geniuses talk gibberish amongst themselves next to an impossible nightmarish box. It's almost monochrome that computer is so bleached out, and it says more about how Tegan sees herself in the TARDIS more than anything else on screen. It transpires that an evil entity called the Mara is trying to take over her body, but initially it's just called stark and bewildering. Yeah, bewildering yeah. is quite fucking right. Yeah, uh, again, it's one of those things of being a kid watching mm-hmm. this, I'd be like, Ugh. I mean, obviously, because... With Kinder, it, it's it's one of those ones of if you understand kind of where the writing was coming from, mm. that it, it's all sort of done along the theme of this whole idea of Buddhism and sort of rebirth and cycles and, mm-hmm. you know, looking inside your mind and introspection and blah, 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 blah. If you get that and if mm. you go into Kinder forearmed with these ideas and you mm-hmm. sort of go, okay, I get what they were directing yeah. at. Um, but also it's quite right in that it's interesting they sort of subject Tegan to this whole arc. Mm-hmm. Between this and snake dance, yeah, um, it it's quite an interesting thing. In that you've got this crowd, Tardis, full of people at mm. this point, and they sort of choose to focus in on Tegan. And I think it would have been so much more effective if she was the only one. Yeah, because <laughs> um, obviously she's had these horrific things happening to her family, and then you have this kind of arc of things happening. So if it's her and the Doctor. Mm-hmm. I think it would it would have much more impact than rather we're trying to juggle between four of these people on on the on the show at the moment. Yeah. Meanwhile, Ness is building a thing inside the TARDIS. And meanwhile, yes. Adric's tripping over something and twisting his ankle. And meanwhile, being rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, uh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. when when I first watched Kinder, I mean, I didn't wasn't aware of that sequence. And I was just like, what? what? The... Wow, this is kind of highbrow for uh, this. It's like a bloody Visage music video, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's like painted grey or something. <laughs> it's like that, and it's like a, a student sort of play or something. Oh do you know god, what I mean? it's so studenty, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's sort of like here's these really high concept ideas. It makes sense to us, but actually, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it. I mean, it, I'll, I'll hold my hand out. In the, it took me reading an essay about Kinder to really mm. get the get what they were driving at with it because mm. I didn't understand it at all. <laughs> <laughs> right, number 28 Snyder 
Snyder, being from the future and all, has probably seen aliens. That would be that would doubtless be no comfort to her as her life signs disappear from the scanner and her former comrades unwittingly tread all over her steaming green viscous remains. Mm. Yeah, one of these ones that's just gross. Yeah, it's creepy that. But um, you know, mad props. Earthshock Part One yeah. has one of the greatest cliffhangers because I mean you've got these androids attacking the soldiers. So you're just like, what the mm. hell's going on? And then suddenly the Cybermen are there. I was like, yeah. whoa. Yeah, Hello. doubling up on those shits. <laughs> and it, it's kind of, it's that sort of more modern take on the Doctor's not really in it very much in the first one. No, he isn't. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you kind of, you get to more know these people who are kind of putting up with all this bullshit. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, again, yes, and if you've seen Alien, Aliens and all that sort of thing, it's... Although this pre... Hang on, will it predate Aliens? Uh, no. No, no, it doesn't. Yeah. Ooh, or does hang it? Hang on. Aliens was 86. Yeah, so, yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. So, actually, someone on Aliens... Because Aliens was shot in this country. Yeah, well, that's true. Someone watched this and went to Aliens. I remember watching the documentary of that, and James Cameron was infuriated because they were making it in this country. Uh-huh. And also, all the people were just taking tea breaks. <laughs> David and James Cameron had no idea what they were doing, not rather than working. <laughs> so they were just all standing around drinking. <laughs> It's, it's the first thing you do on the job is have a tea break. Oh, yeah, put the kettle on. That's yeah. the first thing I always do when I get to work. I think it's what everyone does. <laughs> it's like Billy Collin once said uh, about going to work. It's like you don't just go straight into it. You just like, sit and scratch your you ass. and think about it, yeah. <laughs> I have to work up to it. I have to get to work about five minutes early and work up to it. <laughs> uh, number 29, Snake Skulls. There's a lot going on in Snake Dance and the build-up to Part 1's cliffhanger is a microcosm of subtext. Why, yes, I am stroking my beard as I type. But mainly it's a skull's exploding crystal ball and a herald of oncoming evil. Yeah, that was quite a creepy image. Mm, um, yeah. But Snake Dance to me has always been slightly, the slightly lesser yeah, it of is. the two. I mean, because I mean, you, you can never get past like Martin Clunes. No. Uh, shitty in that outfit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the effects, the actual, the upgraded effects have improved it mm, quite a lot. Yeah. Number 30, The Death Zone. Peter Howell can make a synth howl like an electric hyena having its balls kicked into a threshing machine. <laughs> He's the Mark Knopfler of synths, only good. His theme music sting is the stingiest theme music sting, floating like a bee and stinging like a paper cup. Thus, when presented with some shots of the Death Zone and corridors of the Tower of Rassilon, he turns them, via the meaning of blaring synth, into memorable scene-setting spine chillers. <clears throat> Allow me to do my impression of the synth. Right, I'm going to okay. back off from the mic. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> That's basically the whole sound of the Death Zone. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's, more, it's actually higher up than that. It's more like it's, it's yeah. sort of it's sort of when you when you hear it because it sort of comes out of nowhere. It's like, oh, <laughs> like that, didn't it? Um, yeah. But it, I mean, because the Death Zone could be true and uninspiring, but when it's got a really kind of sort of weird noise associated with mm-hmm. it as well, it's it's kind it does make it more unsettling, despite the shonkiness of the Five Doctors yeah. all over. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the Doctor Who equivalent of the Silent Hill air raid siren. It is, yeah. When because you... when you hear it, it's like, shit's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. Usually <laughs> just like the master skimming across a chessboard. And... <clears throat> Jeans. And... <laughs> <laughs> Number 31, Malice Come. <laughs> <laughs> Dirty boy. Carry on. <laughs> 
know, when we first started this podcast, I didn't even think I was ever going to actually say that. But um, there you go. <laughs> Funny how the thing look, things look different when you're a child. Now the mouse looks like a chicken wire model or slow-moving giant head prop. You have to suspend disbelief. On first viewing, however, it was a demonic entity with a monstrous roar of being so large that its body was buried underneath the ground and its head only appeared in the local church. And yet, it was also this tiny changeling creature that somehow breached the TARDIS and now was spewing green vomit everywhere. Can I just say, when it's in the TARDIS, it's shit. But mm. when it's behind the wall... Right, this takes a little bit of explanation. When, when we were kids, there was mm. a programme called Nightmare... Oh yes, yes, yes. So, and Nightmare was basically a kids' adventure show, and it was like all done in VR, which then was very cutting edge. <laughs> and they'd be walking around in a helmet where they couldn't see, but their mates were in a room behind them watching what they were doing, and it was all sort of projected on a, you know, in a screen and things mm. like that. And one of the monsters in most of it was a face that came out of the wall, mm. and it was like a really weird duck face thing and a really weird voice, and it would ask the dungeoneer as they were called questions. If they fucked it up, they got you know eaten i think it was yeah and <laughs> that thing mm-hmm. has given me a lifelong <laughs> fear of faces in walls <laughs> and so i don't like the malice when it's in the wall mm. behind the behind the um behind, in the church that that i really dislike especially with all the smoke and mm-hmm. you just see his eyes swiveling around in there now when it's in the tides it's shit but that mm. is properly disquieting i dislike it intensely yeah. um spell casting f-u-c-k-t-h-a-t <laughs> yeah i mean it's um I, I haven't seen the awakening in a while and it's, it's, it's yeah it's been the, ages since i watched it yeah it's one of the strange ones it's like i have seen it but i very, remember very little about it you know, um, for me, it's been overshadowed by that. Have you seen the hilarious blooper from it? Oh, that one. With, with the because there's a if you haven't seen it, there's a bit where there's like a horse and carriage, and the Queen of the May is on it. Which is mm-hmm. it, Tegan or is it Nissa? I can't remember which um, one it is. It's slammed by being Queen of the May, who's sort of being held up as like the human sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And um, in this blooper, they're taking her off in into the church, and the horse goes, "Oh, am I supposed to come too?" And tries to come follow the people, mm-hmm. but it's got this massive carriage, and it basically destroys the arch outside the church <laughs> yeah that that's blooper got played to absolute fucking death on television that well rightly so it's hilarious yeah. <laughs> um but yeah um it, it's actually it, is, is that one of the, it's a two episode one at the away game yeah, as well so it doesn't hang around yeah i think that's maybe why i don't remember a lot of it because the like there was few and far between it was only that and maybe it's black orchid i think with like mm. literally the only two parters in Peter Davidson's run, if I'm remembering. Yes, that's right. I think, yeah. Yeah. Hang on, King King's Demons is short also. Oh yeah, King's Demons. Yeah, yeah actually, sorry. Three, three, yeah. sir. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I mean, it, it was nice as well because it, you sort of get that thing of it's not two episodes being kind of stretched out of four to mm. six. Um, it, it's like it's snappy and it goes straight straight on. And it's actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. Number 32, not a Homer reptilia to be seen. Frontios's budget couldn't quite stretch to dragging actors beneath the earth, but as ever with Doctor Who, it's nothing with a little bit of imagination couldn't cover up. A few special effects, some horrifying reactions, and some of Christopher Bidme's most evocative dialogue, he said the earth was hungry. More effective than any visuals could ever be. Yeah, too right. Mm. Doctor Who is very good at letting your imagination fill in where the budget cannot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Frontios, uh, a story which is otherwise a bit yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why did the TARDIS break apart again? I can't remember. Was it? Was it um, it's a Friday, I think. Oh, uh, okay. 
Although you do get all the hilarious stuff of kind of bits of TARDIS, like, you know, the old hat stand on a propped up in the middle of a mine and things like that. <laughs> the tractators look really kind of crappy, mm. I think. Yeah, I couldn't remember what those, uh, those aliens were called. I was going to call them the Graboids, but that was Tremors. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Tremors, a good movie. Like it. It's good. <laughs> Number 33, The Master's Madness Manifest. The drums, the endless drums are not remotely sufficient to explain the Master's insanity. In the mark of the Rani, the master dresses up as a scarecrow and stands in a field so that the doctor, if he happens to walk past, will think it is a scarecrow. It's almost as if he's never heard of walls and houses and his own TARDIS. Then, after he's divested himself of his cack-strewn straw vestments, he kills the dog. Take that, Hollywood. The master's care is not a job for your conventions. While this is all quite amusing on some levels, on others it's vastly more disturbing than percussion-based megalomania. Yeah, he's completely... He's... Basically, yeah. just uh, what the fuck is he doing in Mark and Ronnie? No one even knows. <laughs> he doesn't need to be. Why is he there? He doesn't need he to be. He literally does not need to be there. He's just there to be a dickhead. Yeah, it's just a pain in the fucking ass. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, you know, the thing of he's just sort of standing around like with his stupid Acme like inventions, <laughs> like bloody Wiley Coyote or something. The next thing he's going to be like drawing a tunnel entrance on a rock, <laughs> waiting for the doctor to run into it. <laughs> You know, and then he does some proper serial killer shit and kills a dog. <laughs> Why is he there? It's ridiculous. It's like it's almost like they couldn't think, didn't think the Rani would stand up on her own. So they're like, I'll stick the master in there as well. Oh, Why not? They have little faith. Yeah. Well, Anthony Amy's not busy, and he keeps ringing her. So well, stick him in this one. <laughs> <laughs> Number thirty-four. We are all to become Daleks. Ugh. Davros is converting humans into Daleks. He believes this is what people of intellect and ambition want to do with their dying bodies. This isn't widely known outside of the cryogenic facilities, and so it comes as something as a shock to Natasha to discover the remains of her father as a Dalek embryo. It then alternates between him begging for death and ranting about racial supremacy until she shoots him. Yeah. Awful. This is well dark. Yeah, it's properly disgusting. And mm. it, again, it, it preys on your fear, like the natural human fear of death mm. and oblivion and that there's kind of nothing after this or anything like that. So it, it, it sort of it preys on that kind of really primal mm. urge to, to do something about it. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, even this, like the, the glass Dalek itself is like pretty impressive and like the prosthetics mm. they have for, for Natasha's dad inside mm. it. Like that's that's quite icky. I mean, it doesn't quite stand up today, but you know, it's well, it's, still... it's sort of flyish, isn't it? You know, yeah. and it's sort of all transforming, and you know, things are kind of growing over his face, and it's all. Yeah. Oh, it, yeah. It, it's kind of it, it. It sort of it's that deep primal ick. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it it's sort of in the same things of when you read about like cryogenics, mm-hmm. and like because I remember a lot of the horror and. You know, there was an episode of the X Files about it and stuff like that of people like freezing their heads. <laughs> um, you know, which was a thing in the nineties. Oh, yeah. You know, kids. This is what this that rich people <laughs> were freezing their whole bodies or just their heads mm. um, in the hope that they one day someone would be able to cure whatever pestilence befell them. Um, you know that you know one day there'd be people walking around with some rich dude's head grafted to their shoulder <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, why just the head? I mean, that's not gonna you're not gonna get much. Well, put it on like a robot body or something. Uh, yeah, it's the future, I suppose. But mm. you remember that whole thing about Walt Disney's head was supposedly frozen beneath the Magic Kingdom in um, in <laughs> Disneyland. There's that whole thing, wasn't there? Yeah, I don't 
think that I think wasn't he cremated actually? Oh yeah, probably. But you know, <laughs> nothing nothing kind of lives like a really weird thing about a really weird bloke. Yeah. Which Walt Disney was to be fair. Mm. Never mind. <clears throat> anyway, thirty five, you killed Perry. You bastards. <laughs> The Doctor is watching at his trial and he doesn't know what's about to happen. Brian Blessed plays the role of Warlord to Carnus exactly as you'd expect him to. And yet the tension of romance between him and Perry works because of all the shouting. There's something to there's something to contrast. So when he sees Perry's animated corpse replaced by the conscious of the slug like Kiv, he reacts with horror, denial and then the slow motion roaring before he fires his laser. It's later retcon, but at any rate the Time Lord's villainy in letting Perry die is barely mentioned after the next episode anyway at the time though it's astonishing it was astonishing to me now of how they just kind of brush it off yeah it just sort of happens everyone just goes all right then and moves on yeah but that i mean again that's really dark i mean you know when and as well when she sort of shouts in kiv's voice like that yeah it's got, she's got like the husky voice and you know the the bald cap and all that it's just that's yeah and in, in the meantime, you know, the Doctor is still acting, you know, complete cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And then the TARDIS sort of, like, lands and just gets, it sort of gets pulled into it. Mm. And then he's away for his trial. And so, like, there's nothing he can do to even try and stop that, even though it sort of gets undone. But... Yeah, oh, can we not talk? That is the worst. Uh-huh. That bloody shitty pink love heart. Oh Jesus <laughs> Christ! If you've ever, if you ever listen, if you ever get the DVD, listen to the commentary because Nicola Bright had no idea about it, and the first time she watched it was for the commentary, and she was like, she's like, what? what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's its own special little commentary. Yeah, it's on it's that bit, it's on that like bit, yeah, it's like a forty second bit, if that. Mm. <laughs> it's an entire commentary track for it. Awesome. Oh, terrible. <laughs> Can I just say, I vastly disagree with this one, but anyway, number 36, the vervoids. Mm. It's the thorns, that's what does it. The vervoids are walking plants, and perhaps the costumes aren't the most flattering. They're very effective, scary monsters, nonetheless, combining tried and tested methods, the hissing voice, the human hybrids, the grotesque M- MO, and the hiding in dark places. Mainly, though, it's the thorns, the thought of their piercing their skin, hurting even before the life drains out of you. Yeah, but they look like dicks. <laughs> Yeah, do you know what? Strangely, Terror of the Vervoids is kind of 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 Trial of the Time Lord. It's one of my more favourite parts. Oh yeah, but... it's, it's one of the best bits of Trial. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I've got the the fiftieth anniversary um, collection that um, mm-hmm. Silver Screen put out, and when it came to that track on the on the Sixth Doctor disc, I was like, Jesus Christ, this fucking music is so. <laughs> And also the fact that the costumes is clearly just stuff stuck on a tracksuit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, dear, bless them all. I mean, they try so hard to make mm. them scary. And like you say, their MO is scary. But mm. just they're, they're just when you see them, you just go for what the fuck was anyone thinking? Why could no one said, just can we cut here? They look like a penis. Can mm-hmm. we not do something about this? Yeah. Uh, again, I think it's probably... The overlighting of most of the sets. Yeah, it is. They're getting blasted with arc lamps for most mm. of it. Yeah, but I have to say, I'll, I'll say what you will about the vervoids. I did like the the bit where they actually get die. They die off, and you can see like on the on the bodies, like the the leaves are changing color, and then mm. they sort of like slowly just sort of collapse into like 
you know, just like leaf litter, essentially. Yeah, dead leaves, and like even when the doctor picks one up, it just completely disintegrates. Mm. I mean, it is nice, like you say in 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 trial, that you get like a proper story. Mm -hmm. Um, you get like the sixth doctor doing his thing as well. It's, Mm -hmm. I mean, you get to see that so rarely. Actually, you just get a straight like a Doctor Who like adventure for him. So it's, it's it's nice in that respect, but I I've never thought of the vervoids as scary at any point because their crummy design overwhelms everything about them. For me, that's just for me. But mm-hmm. you know, I think that I think if you again if you saw it as a kid, yeah, before you're kind of aware of their unfortunate appearance, <laughs> um, I think that you you know they definitely have some scary aspects, and you've got you know, um, dear old Mel giving it a hundred and ten percent. Speaking of cacophony. (laughs) So, number 37, the chief clown. Clowns are inherently wrong. They're meant Mm -hmm. to make you laugh, but they're caked in crusting falsehoods. The psychic circus chief clown has a pointed smile which hides malicious streak. The bit where he becomes palpably uncomfortable to watch is when he mimes delight at a suicide he, but not the viewer, can see. Fans of the chief clown might wish to know that the actor Ian Reddington plays the villain in one of the greatest big finish stories ever, Death in the Family, and his prequel, The Word Lord, Seek Them Out. Yeah, Ian Reddington yeah. is a creepy motherfucker in that episode. Yeah, uh, yeah and 100% clowns are inherently wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anyone who's seen it, anyone yeah. who's seen a clown in real life. Yep. Um, yeah, every clown is awful. Basically, mm. I'm not. I'm not one of these like oh, I'm a chlorophobic, you know, person mm. who's properly afraid of clowns. But it's one of those things of it's that uncanny valley masked mm. thing of, and as, as well, a lot of fiction where any any clowns is in, you know they're they're inevitably the murderer mm. or like the kiddie fiddler or something like <laughs> that. So yeah, they're just awful. Yeah, I mean, with the anything, it's like when he has his like his, he speaks not mostly in a falsetto voice, but then he mm. brings it down to a horse whisper and then um like again it's his sort of his signature gesture when something nasty happens mm. you know he's got that smile and he just does that little sort of like thing with his hand i've, I've just done it there I, I don't know why i've done that this is a podcast <laughs> you can't see it imagine it at home get everybody <laughs> damn it <laughs> i do it all the time yeah <laughs> might, i might screen cap that for uh, the simply syndicated post yeah um, absolutely do but um yeah it, yeah. And like you say, because Ian Reddington is a creepy motherfucker, he sells yeah. it so well. <laughs> yeah, and just the inherent creepiness of clowns. I mean, this is even before, like, like again, before it and mm-hmm. all those sort of really famous, awful clown things. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, John Wayne Gacy type stuff. Yeah. You know what? I've, I've called Ian Reddington a creepy motherfucker. We'll never get him on the podcast now. Oh, he'd probably be happy about that, though. <laughs> okay, number 38. Nicholas Parsons is dead inside, is the name of my new band. <laughs> The two Cockney girl, Cockney vampire girls are out to get the Reverend Rainwright. Everyone is lost, they tell him. They kill him. And because he's a good man, he can't do anything. He can't fight and his face has, faith has been crushed by war. It was always going to be this way. Sometimes the curse of Fenric is really depressing. And how. Mm. <laughs> Unfortunately, the picture they've used for uh, Den of Geek has got some of the more less great-looking hemovores, unfortunately. I mean, I can understand the, their design because, you know, they're supposed to be under the water so they get, like, covered in, like, calluses barnacles. and barnacles and moss and all that. Um, but, um, yeah, that was... that was. I mean, because it's, it's evident right from the very beginning of Curse of Fenric with um, Nicholas Parsons' character um, that he's just... He, he's, he's going through the motions. Mm, he's, like, he's completely dead inside. Mm-hmm. 
And um, I mean, still remember the the bit with um, I forget I forget the character's name, but you know when it's like when we first introduced her Wainwright, and she says, "Oh no, this was like a just good thing." And she's just, and he's sort of like he's sort of nodding along, but really you can just tell like, like, like no, this is just no, this is bullshit. Yeah. <clears throat> Number 39, please be quiet while I'm murdering you. Eric Roberts' master comes in for some stick for being a tad outre. However, mm. one of the very first things he does is completely masterly. Having taken over the body of ambulance driver Bruce, he probably kills Bruce's wife and puts his fingers to his lips. The master would appreciate if no one discovered him killing you. It's only polite. Yeah, um... That and the fingernail ripping. Oh, that's horrible. Oh, God. I hate... Ooh, that's creepy. Ugh. Um, I was Ugh. listening to a podcast recently where someone sort of incidentally had lost a fingernail off their, like completely lost a fingernail oh, off their hand. God, oh. And the other host was saying that I would rather you cut off my entire hand <laughs> than have that happen to me. And I kind of feel the same way. Yeah. <laughs> it's horrible, horrible. But um, and I, I sort of, I kind of had a touch of a spiritual problem with the master just being a murderer, just a straight up murderer. Mm. Um, because you, you sort of feel of him as like, not kind of that crass almost but yeah, um that's that's quite a good word for it. it that's not really his style style he doesn't he's never really the sort to get his hands dirty i mean like physically mm. usually it's like the tissue compression on the minute or, with Missy or this with is him. the work of a minion yeah yeah um but yeah i mean i can understand obviously we use this as visual shorthand to say that this is the baddie mm-hmm. so yeah i get that but you know, I, I, it's something that I can't really imagine. Even the like the the crispy master, the yeah. you know, the Peter Pratt kind of mm-hmm. version of him, sort of doing it for doing it for almost kind of you can understand taking over Bruce, but then to kill the wife, it's kind yeah. of like eh. yeah. Okay, number forty. Ah, so that's where the line is. <laughs> <laughs> new series, new dangers. After so long off the air, one of the challenges was knowing how far it was too far when it came to scaring a whole new generation. <laughs> Turns out it was the bit where the guy's dead mother was reanimated as a zombie and broke his neck. That was too far. Um, do you know what? Actually, yeah, just a bit. Just a bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's been quite a while since I watched Unquiet Dead, but mm. that stuff was like... Whoa! Holy shit! Did you just do that? Yeah, it was that. That's the whole thing about what makes zombies horrible. In that you might have to kill a member of your family who's mm. already dead. Uh, see Shaun of the Dead for details. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's just it's kind of awful. Yeah. <laughs> Um, there's kind of no two ways around it. I mean, obviously, like like the article says, they had to feel out where was acceptable for mm-hmm. them, and I think that is about as far as they could push it. Yeah. Um, they they bump into this again in series one in the part that's actually not mentioned on the list, surprisingly. Mm. Um, but yeah, um, obviously they've got to, they've got to feel out the audience. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so number forty one. Well, yes, I am going to suck you to death. How to turn a running joke into a lifelong fear of plumbing? Yeah, they finally made that scary and good for them. <laughs> it's it's one of those sort of like scary moments that's simultaneously funny at the same time. Yeah, it is. It's like Jesus Christ, you went there. <laughs> yeah, they fully went there, and the the effect is horrible as mm. well. I mean, it's like I think you even like get to hear like the skull cracking and. Yeah, I mean, like it, I mean, there's a reason why that DVD was rated 12 mm. or PG-13 for American, yeah. American peoples out there. And it's it's strange because apart from that and I think Doomsday where the Cult of Scarrow um, 
Yeah, they do it to thing a ball. Yeah. yeah, to get his brain waves and they end up, you know, deep frying his head. Um, but have they done that again, I think, in the new series since, have they? No, they haven't. No. Um, but I, th- I think it's probably because it, it sort of does, it's, it tiptoes that very fine line between comical and awful. Mm. And I think maybe, I don't know, I think maybe they'd kind of shied away from it a little bit. Yeah. I think also it's maybe against like the Daleks' grain to sort of like, because it's kind of... It's too personal again. Yeah. It's it's sort of like, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like what a good equivalent. It would be like, so like Jason popping up behind somebody and then just like flat out knifing. It's too sort of subtle and quick for the Daleks. I mean, usually because yeah. they just outright just flat out gun them, people down. That's... Well, it's again, it's, that's efficient. Just mm. shooting somebody yeah. straight, just pew, and then they're dead or exterminated yeah. or whatever. That's This is how we just clear the area of the people that are in it. Whereas deliberately kind of crushing someone's head like that mm-hmm. with the thing, I mean, it just, it, it it's a tribute sort of a, li- a level of maliciousness to them that mm-hmm. kind of, I mean, if again, if you look at someone like James Bond, James Bond shoots people all the time because yeah. he has to. Yeah. Alternatively, if James Bond, you like that bit at the beginning of um, Casino Royale where he beats that guy to death in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Drowns you, him. Drowns him, is it? Well, he, does, he, does, well, he does shoot him at the end, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. But yeah. he mo- he 98% kills him by beating him to death. <laughs> He's right? only mostly dead. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not very actually dead. <laughs> so, But when when he sort of does things like that, you think, oh, that's a, that's a touch too strong. Mm-hmm. Whereas if he just went <clears> into the bathroom and, pew, pew, and you know, double tapped him in the head, you would yeah. say, okay, well, that that's fine then, I suppose. Yeah, it's-, it's things you accept from from the people that you're watching. Yeah, so to use another example, and I'm going to go with a slightly less good uh, James Bond movie, but Die Another Day. At yeah. the end of the car chase with Zhao, and like Zhao's in like the water, you know, the Bond drives past the Aston Martin, and he could have easily just flout shot, but no, he goes for the ice fucking chandelier, and mm. just impales the, the bastard on it. It's like, that's... <laughs> <laughs> But to be fair, they had tortured him quite a lot in that one, so well, maybe we'll yes. let him off. Yeah. Also, he had to sword fight Madonna, and he surfed twice in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, about the surfing scene, the first one was all right because that was real. Yeah. The second fair. one, let's ah, just mm-hmm. say it doesn't look that great on Blu-ray. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it really doesn't. But. Aston Martin. Anyway, moving on. Number 42, Silent Exterminate. Sweet old Linda, a better companion than some who've actually travelled in the TARDIS. Obviously, she had to die. The Daleks are burning down the door and her fate is inevitable. What no one was expecting, though, was for the Daleks to appear appear outside in the vacuum of space and for their lights to silently flash, exterminate. The glass explodes. The camera comes back to the Doctor. You can only imagine. That's... I think that is one of the best deaths in the new series. It absolutely is, and it hurts so bad. Yeah. I mean, especially especially when you see the dogs outside the window, because you know what's coming. But the fact is, when you see the, the lights flash, you know exactly what they're saying. What it's doing, yeah. But you don't hear it. You know, mm. you know, you just like your mind fills in the blank. You just go, oh, shit. Yeah, and yeah. again, it's that whole thing of it cuts the reaction of the Doctor and mm-hmm. you know exactly what's happened and you just sort of hope it was quick for her. Yeah. I'd like to say, because Linda with a Y is, is so lovely as well and just like I say, it's a gut punch when mm-hmm. you watch it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the sort of thing they try to do with Osgood, I think, mm. Death in Heaven, but I don't know. Somehow, 
I don't, I don't know what it is about uh, Osgood's death. It's... I think it felt inevitable with her. I don't know. You just, I mean, I think as soon as she gets, yeah, as soon as she's down there with her, you think she's fucking dead. Mm-hmm. I think it's more. <laughs> I think it's also because, unlike in Death in Heaven, I'm, I'm trying to remember um, parting of the ways off the top of my head, mm. but. I don't think, like, the Doctor outright invites Linda with a Y on board the TARDIS. No, but it's you feel implied. like she's getting lined up for it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's implied that he's, like, he's, you Born know... To her. Yeah. So I think that's sort of why it's a bit more, like, heartbreaking. Mm. Because, I mean, although, you know, both she and Osgood could have been, like, the companions who never were, in Linda's case, I think it's a bit more heartbreaking because she never got the, uh, never even got the offer. Yeah, I mean, because Osgood, essentially, I mean, she's doing an exciting thing already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, she's already in unit and she's doing all this like cool stuff, whereas you, you sort of get the impression with Linda mm-hmm. that she's never had those sort of opportunities afforded to her. Yeah. So it all feels like more of a waste. Mm-hmm. Uh, number 43, Clockwork Stabbings. The girl in the fireplace is probably the best combination of cleverness and emotional heft that the show has ever managed. Being Moffat, though, it also features a brief but bout of terrifying the bejesus out of children. What else could that noise be but the monster beneath our beds? Tick-tock, the tension builds. Tick-tock, the doctor lifts the bed sheets and... Bet you jumped. And continue to jump every fucking time I watch it, <laughs> even though I know it's coming. Uh-huh. Oh, God bless the good uh, ship girl in the fireplace and all who sail and that's... Oh, it's oh. so great. Uh-huh. It's so great. It, it's definitely up there, sort of way up in my top five. Mm-hmm. Um it's fabulous. And it's, again, it's one of those episodes that kind of keeps on giving when you watch it again. You can mm-hmm. sort of pick up on little nuances you didn't get before. But yeah, and it's sort of advantage. It sort of has that, that twin thing of it's a great story and the villains, which could have been totally incidental, mm-hmm. are so cool. Yeah. And there's such a, a sort of unique idea as well. Mm-hmm. And they look so rad as well. It's, yeah. it's kind of that holy trinity of stuff. Yeah. Awesome. 44, Cybermen in the Sewers. Homaging a fair few 60s Cybermen stories, Rise of the Cybermen features a brilliantly tense sequence where the Cybermen come to life in the tunnels beneath Battersea Power Station. The Doctor and Mrs. Moore run for their lives as the Cybermen awake and reach out, grasping towards them in the dark. Um, yeah, I mean, that's straight up sort of... Pro- that's just 101 Cyberman scary, isn't it? Yeah. They're standing there doing nothing and then they just sort of... and come to life and mm-hmm. start going for you. Yeah. And uh, poor old Mrs. Moore. Yeah. Bless that stealth Cyberman. What the hell? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, it's like suddenly it's a siren about it. It's like, how did you not hear them? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's, it's kind of that thing of like being in a confined space and mm. it's dark and you know stuff's coming to get you. I yeah. mean, that's 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 easy scares. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the picture they've got on Den of Geek, I mean, that corridor is literally maybe it's only about four, five feet across. Mm. So you're literally brushing against Cybermen. So mm. the fact when they start activating and start grabbing out it's like no yeah. Way to go. yeah you have to like really you you your reaction time has to be spot on and i think that's one of the like the good things about the, the cyber cybermen is they don't have like the energy weapons like sort of like the, the newer and like all the classic counterparts have it they purely sort of like contact mm-hmm. you know and they when they fry you you know obviously they, they grip your shoulder but you know it's I mean, Which everyone in Doctor Who knows that is the that is the most sensitive part of your body. The standard grab, grab area. <laughs> Toby or not Toby? Gabriel Wolf's voice is a gift to Doctor Who, but spare a thought for his loved ones. His wife gets a call. 
<laughs> his wife gets home for a hard night at the opera and she's greeted by Mother Eleven voice telling her that he's done two hot water bottles and so there's no need for the electric blanket. <laughs> Sorry, just had a mental image. <clears throat> Returning to the fold in the impossible planet, the simplicity of the scare is breathtaking in its inability to induce terror. Don't turn around. Don't turn around or you'll die. He's like, we can't really do justice to his voice. Oh, I mean, no. it's, it is fabulous. Mm. And I mean, we we sort of gushed over Impossible Planet, Satan Pit, when we when we did our season series two review, didn't mm. we? Um, um, I mean, the picture they've got on Den of Geek is just, yeah. Yeah, that's... it's scary for us as well, because we know what's happening in that picture. Yeah, it's the money um, shot. Yeah, it is absolutely is, and um, yeah, I mean we, I mean we sort of went on and on about how we actually like it, and it is properly scary as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially, I mean, because again, I really love it as well because it's that sort of straight Eldritch abomination, Lovecrafty stuff. I mean, looking at uh, poor old Toby with all the runes all over his face and his red eyes. Mm. I mean, that sort of that straight Event Horizon shit. Yeah, it's literally the devil's work. Mm, it really is, yeah. And there's this whole thing of the TARDIS can't translate it. And then you've got all this, that great, booming, rich voice of Gabriel Wolfs as well to bring it all to life. It's so good. Yeah. I mean, I know it's supposed to be scary because it is, but it's still so good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Number 46, don't blink. Try not to blink. Go on, try it. It's really, really difficult. And all you're doing is reading a list full of scary things while looking at a picture of a weeping angel in your monitor. By the way, that which holds the image of an angel itself becomes an angel. Try not to blink. And I will tab down very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, um, Most sort of vividly illustrated in, I think, uh, Time of Angels, that two-parter actually, it doesn't get as much credit as it should, I don't think, for showing Mm. the angels at kind of full powers. Yeah. Because in blink, they're kind of at 10% strength, Mm -hmm. essentially. So, I mean, in that one, they're kind of full tilt, and f- fully on it and it's it's i think it's actually succeeds it's, it's scary as well as blink but mm-hmm. it's it's scary in a different way yeah because they're kind of fully unfettered mm-hmm. so yeah and this whole thing of the what is an image of an angel becomes an angel is is worked works so well in that as well mm-hmm. it's I so mean, that, scary that entire sequence where amy's locked inside the the canister and it's got the screenshot of the angel and every time <laughs> It changes and then it starts to actually materialize out of the television. It's like some sort of ring yeah. sort of shit, you know. It's it's and she's trying to do that thing that people always say: if why don't she just have one eye open, then change it? Mm. Doesn't work. No, yeah, that's rubbish. Um, what I really love about the Weeping Angels is something that I didn't realize until I went back and read about it: mm-hmm. is that people were complaining that if there's no one there, they don't move. Mm-hmm. But then someone pointed out, you're watching them. Yeah. That's why they're not moving. And then you go, ah! <laughs> No! No! I mean, that and um, in um, Flesh and Stone, the part where Amy's you know, got her eyes closed because, you know, the angels have infected her brain. And the bit where she's navigating through, you know, the angels, and then you actually actually see them moving. Because mm, usually, yeah, usually the cracky, creaky sort of thing, yeah. Yeah, because usually they just portrayed through like a series of jump cuts, like they look away and then suddenly it's closer. But when they actually see the movie, I mean, that wasn't that wasn't a special effect. That was actually the people in the angel costumes. Moving. You know how long it realized it took me to realize that. I mean, in Blink, two mm-hmm. of the angels of the four are people in costume. Mm. 
I did had no idea for such well, a long time until I. I saw them being being made up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know that for a long while either. I mean, that's just uh, that's so awful. I mean, I think it's telling that when I when I like went to the exhibition and stuff, mm-hmm. people were giving them a wide berth. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I think it would be even better if they'd actually had like people who's like. Do the sort of the living statues on like uh, I, if high that, streets? I, they would get punched so much. <laughs> I think I could not be held accountable for my actions. It would just be a completely instinctive swing for them, and they would, you know, there would be criminal charges involved. <laughs> Speaking of, uh, here we go. My favourite episode of series four. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. 47 Midnight. The creature's ineffability isn't the scary thing about this one. It's the realisation that the 10th Doctor's veneer of bonhomie and charisma is so thin, so delicate, it's a wonder he lives as long as he does. Nobody is safe from the creature, but equally nobody is safe from each other, and that includes the Doctor, even if he's clever. I've My thoughts on Midnight are well documented on this podcast. Yeah. I'm saying no fucking more. Yeah, I'll say easily the most frightening episode of Doctor Who ever i think god damn it just straight frightening um oh. yeah and we're gonna move on before mike has to you know i'm gonna lie down on a hall licks oh. number 48 one drop uh, oh god carry on do you want to oh god oh god i'm okay 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 okay, okay hang on. 48 one drop there are a lot of <laughs> reading to a paper bag. go to happy place find your okay. power animal <laughs> okay there are lots of zombies on this list. There are lots of creatures who can possess you based on touch because it's cheap and effective and doesn't require blood. What's impressive is the sheer number of ways people have come up with to overcome the limitations of a sh- the show's time slot and audience to produce many of the horrors of Romero zombie flicks without anyone getting torn apart. In the waters of Mars, Russell T. Davis and Phil Ford take the socially responsible angle of making water something so terrible that one drop r- robs you of your humanity. Roman is caught by one drop. We never see him again. No deaths from dehydration have ever been reported. Um, I would argue that that's not the scary thing about Waters of Mars, that actually mm. that is kind of incidental to what happens in the episode. It's the but vehicle yeah. to uh, get us to the point. Yeah, but I mean, the whole thing of water always wins mm-hmm. um, is scary because, it's one of, again, it's that fridge thing. Of, yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, anyone who's been stymied by plumbing issues uh, will know that water does indeed always win. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, I think one of my favourite bits is that that straight that bit is straight nicked from twenty eight days later of the one drop in the eye. Ugh. Yeah. Um, yeah, that is. I mean, and it's one of those things of you know. I mean, it works so well in twenty eight days later. So why wouldn't they use it? Mm-hmm. Um, if if you know, it's just that one thing of oh, he's fucked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, other, the other good one I always like from Waters of Mars is, I can't remember who is it, it's one of the women I think, when um, she's like in the little video conferencing bits off to the side of like the main control area, and then suddenly there's this like waterfall in front of her and she's trapped and there's just, that's it. There's no getting out. Mm. Um um, it's also interesting for the behind-the-scenes stuff. They basically nearly drowned the poor woman who was playing the main man of the flood because she's got like a it's a tube that's sort of blended into her cheek. It mm-hmm. sort of stuck to her cheek, and then it goes around in like a U shape inside her mouth. Yeah, so she's and then obviously like drooling. It, yeah, drooling. But they trying to get the rate of the water 
so she didn't essentially choke on it is something yeah. that's actually quite horrible because the actress was going through it. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's it's properly nasty. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, but shout out I think to the person who wrote this list for not going for the obvious thing for Waters and Miles, which is the actually scary part of mm. the time victorious. <laughs> so number forty nine, enjoy the silence. The silence remained ineffable, confined to series six, and with her backstory only hinted at. Well, that's not exactly. Well, that's that's, that's no, just, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, dated the article. The so yeah, there you go. So as well as the forget forget me not stylings and screaming skull like appearance, they also feature in one of the few expertly done, daintily placed, creepy reveals of recent times as Amy investigated an abandoned orphanage, only to find the silence outside the fifth wall. Don't look up. Yeah, that's so weird. Just all see him yeah. hanging there like bats. Yeah. Like well, you, the last place you expect these lot to be hanging out is oh, yeah. hanging out is up there. Again, related to my um, when I went to the Cardiff experience last uh, last time I went, this was a few years ago now, mm-hmm. when the silence were just first introduced and that scene had happened. And we, you're walking through the first part of it. I mean, I think every designed it all now, but walking <laughs> through the first part, and I literally I just happened to look up and there was like a clump of the models. <laughs> hanging from the ceiling and I was like punching Chuck in the shoulder like, look, 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 like yes. <laughs> again people didn't want to walk underneath them mm. I can't imagine why mm. um, again but so creepy and yeah. it, it, I mean it's just one of those things of it's that whole thing of Silence of the Lambs when you first see Hannibal Lecter is standing up mm. and you don't expect it you expect to be sitting on the bed or in a chair mm. or something and it's that sort of that, that shock of the what the fuck <laughs> yeah and number 50, Live Chess. Stephen Moffat throws away great ideas as window dressing, much like Philip K. Dick. One of his best comes from the wedding of River Song. After a game of Live Chess, the Doctor follows Grand Talk to the seventh transept, <laughs> where the skulls of the headless monks are stored, and their sudden deaths go being buried alive then eaten by severed skulls is certainly unnerving. Then purely to keep us on our toes, the skulls turn to face the Doctor as if to say, and... <laughs> Um, it's yeah, an I, interesting one to close the list out on, I have to say. Oh, it certainly is, yeah. I mean, it is one of those scary ones, but I kind of... I don't, didn't really find it scary. I thought it was kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially it's got, sort of um, like sort of evil daddy. Yeah. yeah. Sort of disembodied skulls. Going, blah, 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 you know, and they're, <laughs> just sort of, they're, they're clearly being sort of thrown from off camera as well because they're kind of flying in from all directions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so... it's. It's like almost like fifties B movie sort of level of. Oh, it really is. Sort of crazy, sort of like. Eh, right? But um, when you, I keep forgetting that's Mark Gatiss. Yeah. As Gantos. He's in a big giant latex head, isn't he? Yeah, but sort of like Valkyrie esque, you know, ponytails, you know. Mm. But um, yeah, well, it's a bit of a strange one to end on, isn't it? It is. Um... I mean, as well, I think this list is quite interesting for some, maybe some obvious things. I mean, mm. I think the thing that really stands out to me is the um, the bit with the gas mask zombies, the transformation mm. scene um, that was very so infamous. Like I say it ended up getting the D- the DVD a twelve rating in this country, which is kind of unprecedented for Doctor Who. Mm. It's always been a kind of universal or PG type of thing. Um, so I was quite surprised that wasn't on the list. Yeah, I'm just trying to uh, skim through some of the comments on Den of Geek and. Um... One I haven't seen mentioned so far actually comes from uh, the Seventh Doctor's era and Dragonfire mm. at the end where Kane decides to kill himself by stepping in front of the just like pure and filtered sunlight and you just see him melt. Mm. I mean, I'm, it took, I I haven't seen like Dragonfire until like recently, but yeah. I did have a book called um, 
um, oh god, time frame I think it was called. And it was sort of like a history of the, like, the last thirty years of Doctor Who, and I was like, was, like pictures, and then every so often you'd have like little side strips, and I'd have like four pictures from an episode of like a sequence, and then I'd have like a like a like a couple of paragraphs from like the novelization of it, of that, mm. of that story, and that's when I first saw Kane melting, and it's there was just like, uh, and I was about, I mean, I was only about maybe ten or so when I when I. Read, had first owned this book and actually gave me nightmares. Mm. I got I got nightmares from reading about a thing in a book. <laughs> it's not unusual. It's happened to me as well. And yeah, I mean that definitely is scary. Um, one another one here that's quite interesting. The Vashnarada didn't get a didn't get a mention mm. here actually, which is again quite interesting. Something from series eight. I think if this list was redone, um, the aliens from Flatline. Oh yeah. Yeah, um, that's real scary, and the whole concept of listen as well mm. is uh, pretty terrifying. Yeah, I'm just uh, looking through the denigrates. Um, somebody mentioned Count Scarlioni's aging reign to of death. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cobweb strewn Davros and Destiny of the Daleks. Yeah. Um, the werewolf transformation in Greatest Show in the Galaxy. Mm. Yeah, that was quite. Uh, uh, weird. Um, well, there's uh, Time Lord Victorious mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. Mask of Mandragora, when they rip off Hieronymus' mask and there was no face. Mm, I mean, again, I think if you watch that as a kid, mm-hmm. that's definitely scary stuff. But yeah. uh, for me, it didn't really, didn't really kind of strike much of a thing with me because I saw it as an adult. So, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely creepy. Mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting as well in the new series how much is kind of is scary for all ages. I mean, it's stuff mm-hmm. that even I find unsettling or scary as a grown-up hmm. and you know i think that these sort of things if i'm watching these as an eight-year-old i would just be hiding under the covers the rest of my life i think <laughs> yeah is there any others you'd uh, think should have been on the list or oh the bloody vervoids one for a start <laughs> um yeah i'm not not a big fan of that i don't think that's particularly scary um mm. I, I would say some maybe um, I, like, I, I can't really criticise any of these too much because they're yeah. quite subjective, obviously. It sort mm. of depends on what you personally find, you know, unsettling. Yeah. Um, but I think that it speaks to the richness of the show that I think you could make another 50 list with an entirely set of different, a completely separate list. Mm-hmm. There's so many sort of different scary unsettling or yeah. you know creepy uh, all these kind of different flavors of kind of scariness um yeah. you could make something completely different and mm-hmm. i think it just like i say speaks to the richness of the show mm. so if you'd like to uh, tell us what you thought about the list or if you have your own suggestions you can email us at greatershow at simply syndicated.com or you can visit us on twitter at uh, greatest show pod also uh, we have a facebook page if you'd be Good enough to tell us about that. Yeah, head around to Facebook in the search bar, put Greatest Show in the Galaxy podcast. We should pop up. Come and give us a like and drop something on our wall. Mm-hmm. While you're on Simply Syndicate, do check out all the other shows. Uh, Seventh Chevron is one of our newest uh, stable mates, as well as uh, Movies You Should See, Remote Patrol, all that great, great, great stuff. So with that being said, thank you very much, Emma. Thank you, Mike. And I shall talk to you next time. Mwah. Mwah.